to uh, be diving into uh, the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12 is going to be the focus of our deliberations this morning. You'll find that on page 797 if you're using a pew Bible. Zechariah is not one of those that you normally read. But it is the passage that is quoted in uh, the Matthew passage that we read for the call to worship uh, and also in John's account uh, of the triumphal entry of Jesus riding in uh, to Jerusalem on the donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from, the, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Now, Zechariah was a prophet in Jerusalem uh, around 520 uh, B.C., 538 uh, was when the Persian Empire allowed the Jews to return to the rubble that Jerusalem was and began rebuilding it. And just to put it into the context of what we've been studying, we've been studying the, the prophet Hosea. Hosea ministered 200 years before Zechariah. So Hosea ministered during the time when the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were still in existence, although separated. And uh, Hosea was telling the northern kingdom especially, look, you need to turn back to the Lord uh, or something bad is going to happen to you. And of course they did not turn back to the Lord and they were sent into exile. And then about 150 years later, 160 years later, uh, the southern kingdom fell as well to the Babylonians. Well, the Babylonians eventually were conquered by the Persians, and here we back, we're back to the times of Zechariah. The Persians had a different foreign policy. Uh, they did not uh, move people around and send them into exile. They told the Jews, hey, you can go back to your homeland and rebuild it. We want our kingdom to be a nice place, and go and rebuild Jerusalem and your temple and so forth. And so shortly after they arrived there in Jerusalem, a couple of prophets, or a few prophets, arrive on the scene, mainly Haggai and Zechariah. And today we're going to look at Zechariah. Now the first thing that the returnees to Jerusalem set out to do was to rebuild the temple. It was in ruins. It had been razed to the ground. And they began well. They laid the foundation within the first two years that they were there. But the people didn't flock to Jerusalem. The Jews who were in exile, a lot of them just stayed where they were. I mean, they didn't want to uproot. They'd gotten comfortable wherever it was, whether they were in Babylon or elsewhere. And so they didn't flock back to the city. So there was, there was not enough people to really do the heavy lifting that was required. 
uh, to rebuild this temple. And then you had uh, foreign inhabitants of the land around them who were interfering with the work. And of course, these small band of Jewish uh, uh, people who were there in Jerusalem didn't have the, the clout. They didn't have the, the political power in order to withstand their enemies. And so they were kind of at the mercy of the people around them. They, people complained, and, and so the, the building on the temple stopped, uh, stopped progressing. They actually just abandoned the work for about 16 years. Nothing was done. There was unrest within the Persian Empire. There was regime changes, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, inability to get things resolved because the, the, the enemies had sent letters to the government and said, they can't keep building this temple. They're trying to, to rise up against the Persians. And the Jews were saying, no, that's not the case. And you know, it, it, it all got lost in the red tape. And so for 16 years, nothing happened. It's very, very discouraging. They started the work with enthusiasm, but their high hopes were soon dashed. The work was difficult. They were frustrated. And it felt like God just wasn't blessing them at all. They wondered even if God had forsaken them. Now on top of all that, uh, the people in Zechariah's day were also experiencing difficult economic times. Haggai, one of Zechariah's contemporaries, as I said before, said... You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All these problems, their limited human resources, their limited economic resources, and their lack of political power and military might, these were all bad enough, but they were superseded by an even worse problem, an even more serious problem, and that was spiritual decline. Apathy towards God, lack of reverence and awe to the one who had delivered them from exile, brought them back and put them in the land. So there was moral decay going on within the, within the people there in Jerusalem. They had become disillusioned with God careless in following God, and cynical. Now this spiritual decline, more than anything else, was the cause of their problems that led to disappointment, discouragement, and frustration. Had God forgotten them outright, or even abandoned them? To these people, in that situation, Zechariah the prophet brought a word from God, a word of hope and a word of encouragement. Now, you think about those times. Can anybody here identify with Zechariah's times? I mean, it sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Spiritual apathy, moral decay, lack of zeal for God uh, and his work, a shrinking church. Zechariah himself puts it, a day of small things. Maybe you've heard people throw that phrase around. Lack of political clout in the culture. A voice, the church... Uh, has no voice in our culture, a voice that's not heard or at least is getting drowned out by the opposition. We can see that. Difficult economic times, debt, disappointment, discouragement, frustration. It doesn't take much imagination 
to see that our times have much in common with Zechariah's times. So to us, as was true in Zechariah's day, to us, Zechariah brings a word of hope and encouragement directly from God. So I'm trying to get you to see that this old book with this prophet with a funny name has something to say to us here today in 2016. Now you notice in verse 11, God says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Uh, He's using a metaphor there. Uh, you think of a deep cistern, that word pit is the same as a, a cistern. And they, you know, in those days they had to dig cisterns to, to catch water. And uh, this was a cistern, very deep, but there was no water in it. And if someone threw you into it and left you there, you'd be in a real pickle. You'd be in a dire straits because you would be captured there, unable to get out, and you would soon die of thirst in that warm environment. This is what is being communicated here, that, that, that the people were in a waterless pit. They were in a hopeless situation and helpless to do anything about it. They couldn't get out of their situation. At least they believed they couldn't. And God uses Zechariah to tell them that there is hope. Now notice in verse 12, the next verse, he calls them prisoners of hope. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. They were prisoners at the moment, but with hope. Because there is one who will deliver them from the waterless pit, from this hopeless situation, one who will restore to them double, a king. Actually, he says, your king, your king will come and deliver you from the waterless pit. So you... You might be a prisoner now, but you're a prisoner with hope. You have a hope. Don't forget that hope, Zechariah says, to them and to us as well. And it's important we know exactly where we're placing our hope today. And that's what I want you to focus on and think about. This king, you notice that verse 9 announces this good news, that a king is coming to you. He is coming for those in the waterless pit. He is coming for those who are disappointed, discouraged, and frustrated. He is coming for those who are helpless and hopeless, who have no resources to save themselves. He is coming for this very purpose. He is the one who is going to bring salvation, and they're not going to find it anywhere else. Neither are we. We must look at that king, to that king, this righteous or just or lawful, that's the, he, is, he is a righteous king, it tells us there. And he's, he's going to come and make things right. Things that are wrong, he's going to make right. Things that are unjust, he's going to make right. He's righteous, he has salvation, he has the ability to do something about it. And that's his entire purpose in coming, is to do something about the problems. But he's humble. And this word in Hebrew means poor or lowly, uh, even afflicted. He's a humble king. He's going to be different than, a, than the kings who come in with power and might and military prowess and political influence. He's a humble king. So different than the kings that you're used to. One that's accessible 
one that's more like the common man. And he's going to bring peace, not only to Jerusalem, but the, the peace is going to be far-reaching, reaching out to the nations, to the entire world even, because his demean, dominion, his kingdom is going to take over the entire world. It's going to be a universal reign. Your only hope, Zechariah says to these hopeless people, to us hopeless people, is in this king. And he tells the people in Zechariah's day to be on the lookout for this king. And they were. For 500 years, they were looking out for this king, for this Messiah to show up on the scene. So fast forward about 500 years after Zechariah to Jesus' day, to the city of Jerusalem, to a bunch of people living there much like they were in Zechariah's day. Not oppressed by the Persians, but now they're oppressed by the Romans. They had no political power, zero military might. The economy was difficult. Roman taxes were high. The tax collectors were often corrupt and took more than was their share. The people's religion had become a cold formality. And there had been centuries of unrest since Zechariah's day. There were factions of freedom fighters who would rise up and, and try to revolt against the Romans. People like Barabbas, who was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Probably murdered a Roman. You can see that the people were discouraged, frustrated, helpless, hopeless, powerless, and into the city rides Jesus on a donkey. The one who had been saying things with authority and who had healed people and even raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus rides in on a donkey, just like Zechariah had promised, and the people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king, even the king of Israel. And they're waving palm branches like the children did here. hope no one got taken out on the interior aisles here, the waving of the palm branches. The palm branch was significant. Um, it wasn't just that they, hey, let's grab some palm branches and wave them. That seems like a fun thing to do. No, the palm branch was a national symbol, kind of like the eagle is uh, for America, or waving the flag. Palm branch was a national symbol, and so they were saying, hey, Israel is coming back. Finally, we've got a king. He's going to come in and, and we're going to get power and influence again and affluence. Jesus is going to make Israel great again. But something seemed to go horribly wrong with all that. Instead of rising to the throne and taking over, Jesus was arrested by the Romans. This so-called king, he was not giving them what they wanted. So they turned on him. Give us Barabbas, they cried. Why would they cry that? Because Barabbas was a man of action. Here's a guy who was getting something done. He's killed a Roman. Jesus hadn't killed anybody. He's not really doing anything and the Romans are beating him. And when Pilate brings him out, beaten, bloody, dressed in a purple robe, 
with a crown of thorns on his head, and Pilate saying, Ha ha, look at your king now. Behold the man. They yell out, Get rid of him. Crucify him. Kill him. So they killed him. Palm Sunday is a strange day to celebrate, isn't it? When you think about what was going on here, uh, you got these people uh, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem uh, for all the wrong reasons. They thought he was going to be the king who was going to deliver them from oppression and bring them to this place of power once again. So they rightly identified Jesus as the king but their idea of what that kingship should look like was all wrong. In fact, they didn't really want the king. They wanted what the king could give them. They really didn't care who the king was. What they were interested in was what the king could give them. Peace, power, prosperity. And when they didn't get in the manner they wanted they rejected the king. Now, do we make the same mistake today by using Jesus only to get what we want? What do we really want? Well, our culture dictates to us what we want. You know, follow the money. You can always say that about Americans. Follow the money and you'll, you'll find out you know, the source. It's all about the money, really, because we're a materialistic culture. We want someone to make us affluent again, to, to prosper us. And that's the same thing the people in Zechariah's day wanted, the same, people, the same thing that the people in, in Jesus' day wanted. They wanted money, power, influence. They wanted to be able to call the shots in their own lives. Well, Jesus didn't come to do that. That's not why he came. Uh, he didn't come to give us power and prestige. Uh, he came to give us not what we want, but what we really need what we really need. Look at verse 11. That's, that's the important verse. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, the blood of the covenant. The night before Jesus died, when he was serving that final meal with his disciples, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you go back to all the covenants that were made, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they, were, they all point to this covenant. They're all the same covenant, really. They're all fulfilled in Christ. So when, when Abraham divides up the animals in Genesis 15, this bloody ceremony, and God, in the form of a smoking pot and flaming torches passes between the pieces. He, he's making a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he's taking curses upon himself saying, you know, I'm, I'm making a, a, a covenant to be your God and you'll be my people. And if that covenant is broken, I will, I will die. I will be torn apart like these animals. And then the Mosaic covenant, when God appears on Mount Sinai to the people in Moses' day and, and he gives them the law and says, here's, the, here's a sacrificial system uh, that, 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 uh, where sin is uh, dealt with through sacrifice. All, they're just pointing to Christ, ultimately. 
Christ is the fulfillment of all that. He's going to shed his blood. God himself, because he wants to be our God and to have us as his people, he is going to shed his blood, the blood of the covenant. And that's what Jesus rode into Jerusalem to do, to die. You know, it was okay that, uh, that they turned on him and killed him because that's what he went there to do. Because that's what they really needed. They didn't need for him to deliver power or prestige or affluence. They needed to be able, through his sacrifice, to have a relationship with him, to, to, to have him. See, what did the disciples have? And you think about this. The disciples followed him for three years and then Jesus died. He was gone. They were so sad. Jesus rose from the dead and they were joyful. Now, did anything change for them? What changed for them? They were still poor. <laughs> they still had very little influence in the culture. They still uh, they had no political power or military might at their disposal. There was only 11 of them, plus a few others, that were interested in Christ. But they had Jesus. And that's all they wanted. They had Jesus. They had this one back, this relationship with Jesus. And even after he ascended, the Spirit came. And they had Jesus living in them by the Holy Spirit. This is the king we need. We are sinners, and the greatest need we'd have is not to become affluent or prestigious or powerful or, or anything else that we might pursue. What we really need is to have a relationship with this king. He's done all the work in dying for us so that we can have that relationship. But often we, like the people in Jesus' day, pursue the benefits that Jesus might bring to us instead of pursuing Jesus. I want to encourage you today to pursue Christ. And then then all these things will be added to you, as Jesus said. Seek first my kingdom, and I'll give you whatever you need. It might not be everything you want, but it'll be everything you need. And you'll have me. And in the end, I will return again, not on a donkey, but on a horse. Uh, he, will, he will smash his enemies once for all, including the last enemy, death itself. And he will set all of his people free, free from the waterless pit, free from any hopelessness or helplessness. And as we live in this world of hostile foes and waterless pits that we walk through, we're called to wait and hope and watch and expect and be ready for the return of the King. We look forward to that day. The Apostle Paul has an interesting verse. Uh, towards the end of his life, he writes to his protege, Timothy, and he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here's the most important part. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why do we love his appearing? Not just for what he's going to give us, but because we see him, we have him, he's here with us. And we will be able to see him physically one day. And we will be there with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. And what a joyful day that will be. Is that the king that we welcome and are look, looking forward to? 
and that we are even experiencing now because of the shed blood of the covenant that allows us to have a relationship with him. Do you know that relationship, and, and is this your king? This is the program for the history of the world. This is how it's all going to come down and, and out. And this is the only way of salvation. This is it. This is where history is going. This is the king, the one and only. It's Jesus. There's not a lot of ways up the mountain that all end up at the same point. This is the only way. There's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. It's only Jesus. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, as always, thank you for the word of God that, that tells us the way things really are, what really reality really is, and what we should believe. Lord, we pray that you would give us greater faith in you, to trust you even in the midst of times where we feel like we're in a waterless pit. Lord, help us to pursue the right things. We know that you'll provide for us. Help us not to just pursue material possessions or power or prestige or whatever it is that we might be pursuing. But Lord, we pray that we would pursue you, to know you, to fall deeper in love with you, to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.